Show Me The Money, the podcast that looks at the business side of movies and TV with Jess Robinson and Stephen Follows. You're already laughing. We just started. What's going on? Well, you say we've just started. We've actually just been trying to get the internet to work for about <laughs> half an hour. But everything's going to be all right. If you're hearing this, it was fine. Yeah. If you're hearing this then um, great um, measures were taken to get you to hear this. So thank you, thank you, and please stay till the end. How are you, Stephen? I'm good, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, we're, we're, filming, we're recording this a day early because I think you don't like it when I travel. You seem to get sort of all... I just got a bit jealous. <laughs> uh, and tomorrow I'm off to camp, so uh, I thought so we'd do this a day early. I know. Oh. So, without further ado, we've got, um, we've got three uh, great topics... And another listener question. I'm very excited. So, uh, firstly, the French visual effects industry is doing very well, apparently. Could you tell us more, please? It is indeed. And so this, this touches on a few things that we've been talking about in the past, because the, one of the main reasons is there's a tax credit that they've been they've really introduced and then they've been tweaking and improving. And, and you can see in the detail of what they're doing, how they're using it to, to attract different kinds of productions. And it's been quite successful. So they... You know, there's lots of people talking about there being a, a golden age of French uh, visual effects. Mm. And so, which is interesting because visual effects arguably started in France, you know, with Georges Méliès doing, you know, The Man on the Moon. You know that, the old black and white one that's got like a moon and the sort of a, yeah. a rocket. And yeah, so it's like they've got a long tradition of that. But they've got this um, rebate, which I think is, I like, I like the title of it. It's called Trip. Uh, so these productions are tripping, uh, and they're on a trip because they're, they're international productions. It stands for tax rebate for international production. Um, and initially it was 20% of the amount they could spend, but of the production spend, now it's gone up to, up to 40% if they do a lot of the visual effects in France. So 40% of the money they spend. So if they spend, let's say a hundred million uh, euros in France, they can get 40 million euros back from the French government, um, in theory. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, and it's and there's lots of requirements to be eligible. Like it has to be, a f so there's a few issues in this that I, I love that sort of speak to the, how the industry is changing. One of them is it has to be a fiction film, but film is defined as uh, feature film. It could be TV, web short, VR, short film, TV show. Like just there's one oh, episode. Wow. Yeah, it's like a sequence they talk about. So that's kind of interesting. The, I mean, the BFI have done that in the UK. So the British Film Institute have retroactively defined film as almost anything that's on a screen. Um, <sighs> I don't think they're changing the, the meaning of the word. I think it's just that they were called, they're called the BFI and they have right. responsibility for things like video yes. games and high-end TV. And so rather than rename themselves or, you know, the BFI TV, VFX, you know, whatever, they just sort of go, well, when we say film, we mean everything you see with your eyes. Uh, I think that's where it's going. So there's, so that part's interesting that it's like all kinds of, not just film film. Um, and what you have to do is you have to shoot a little bit in France, but mostly you have to do things like post-production in France and spend a lot of money there. And you also have to pass a cultural test. So first question of the pod for you, Jess, how would you decide uh, whether a film is French enough? If you're the French government and you say, oh right, gosh. films have to provide a cultural test, what are you? What sort of criteria are you going to put in that? Oh my gosh! And let's not let's not go down the casual <laughs> racism route um, or the um, don't be casual about anything. Don't, here. don't be casual about anything. Um, oh god! So it doesn't have to have the Eiffel Tower in it or stuff, but um, it's got to be in a French language. Okay, I'll tell or, you if you're right in a minute, but. <laughs> 
or about, even if it's not in a French language, maybe about a community of people living in France or something <laughs> like that. It's got to have a link to France in some way. Yeah. Um, that's all I can think of, really, in a really, like, if we're really... Otherwise, how, how can it work? Yeah, so it, they most of these places that have tax credits have some sort of cultural test. And it's it really shows how films are made and it shows what the priorities of the country are. So the way it works is that there's a whole load of criteria where you get a different number of points. And what yeah. do points mean? Prizes! Ta- tax credits for films. Oh. It was a good guess. It was a good guess. Um, so you need to get uh, a minimum of 18 points. Uh, and so I'll give you some of the criteria because there's a few, yeah. but it, it's both on and off screen. So on screen, you get yeah. four points if a, a relative majority of the scenes take place in France. Okay. That's pretty good. Um, next criteria, at least mm-hmm. two sets must be symbolic of France. Oh, so a restaurant? I, I, I don't know. Cheese shop? <laughs> Not sure, but there's three points there. Now, it's, now we move on. I'm cherry picking some of these because I think they're interesting. But uh, next one is the characters. So this, oh. one, this one you're going to like because this one gets increasingly strange. So um, at least one main, there's one point for this. At least one main character is French. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From a French speaking country mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or European country or of a nationality that cannot be determined. Oh. <laughs> so yes. So they want. Right. So a yeah. character. Yeah, so they want characters that are French or French speaking because that's cultural. But but in the UK they in the in the EU they can't really say oh we're going to prioritize no. French people over British no. or you know well it's not British but like Belgian people or whatever so they say European country. And then I haven't seen this maybe it's been added in this time since I've seen these in the past for other countries but of a mm-hmm. nationality that cannot be determined. So, That's really interesting. That's like, or, or anyone really. <laughs> yeah, anyone who's basically not not a European. So if, yeah. if you're clearly not a European, but obviously of this planet, so Buzz Lightyear is American, so that wouldn't work. But the aliens, presumably they don't have a nationality. Right. So that's good. Um, you get points also for a plot that highlights French artistic heritage or period of French history. Lovely. Um, um, interestingly, I don't know that you get points, more points if the story or plot are adapted from an existing work. Nothing to do with French stuff, just existing work. That's um, interesting. Why? I think so. The ho- this whole uh, this is French um, taxpayers' money. Yeah. But it doesn't go to French films. So this is only for what they call international production. So if you actually have a French film, either entirely French or a French co-production, you can't apply for this. Be, there's another scheme they can do. So oh. this is trying to get international productions. And so I think for the format they have, they, they always ask for a cultural test. So they wrote one. But really, they kind of want everyone to pass it because the whole point of it is it's not really a cultural tax scheme. It's an industrial mm. tax scheme. Mm. They're trying to get business. And there was a real brain drain of lots of VFX people leaving and going to other countries. And so they're trying to keep that and keep the work in. So they're creating a test that's so wide that, I mean, you can't really fail it. And it's also skewed towards larger films. More, the bigger the film, the more likely it is it's an adaptation. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and you get points for, for shooting in France and for the for the, the crew behind the camera, certain key crew being um, like French or European. Um, mm-hmm. Although it doesn't say, let me have a look. No, it, it doesn't say or of no nationality. So, no, you do have to be European or French, which includes British as European, which is... okay. Maybe a typo. I don't know. Yeah, it must uh, be these days. <laughs> Although I, we did very well in the Eurovision Song Contest. We did very, very well. And, Did you uh, watch it? I didn't. It's Space not my kind of thing. Man. 
It's such a good song. <laughs> now we can carry on with the podcast. After we've paid all the uh, the licensing rights. Yes. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was a parody, right? It was clearly off key, so it's a parody. We'll go it was with that. a di- very different, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... So yeah, so we've got the this sort of increased um, uh, rebate for international productions uh, going to France, shooting in France, but crucially doing visual effects in France. And then that has a knock-on effect that you get more uh, effects houses opening there and you also get uh, an increased sort of internationalization of the VFX world because we can move files all over in the world. And really, it's a skill that everybody who goes in the industry has to learn because it's not something that's taught in, in traditional schools and things. So in theory, it could happen anywhere that someone's got a computer and can manipulate the images because they do it you know one shot at a time so you don't need a particularly souped up computer to do like one bit of rotoscoping where you cut a mm. character out or whatever um so it's really international and the ta- the um productions are chasing wherever it's the cheapest place to shoot or they get the most money back and so therefore the jobs go to different places and you can outsource things and so we start to see companies owning like dneg uh, they open places all over the world so they can actually when they have a production coming in they have too much work they can farm it out to their office in mumbai or wherever else and so yeah it's this increasing global network of visual effects um, companies and individuals and so then the competition to attract that to your country is getting you know greater and greater mm-hmm. and at the moment the french are winning and at some point either they will reduce or run out of that or they'll change their mind on it or someone else will offer a more attractive one and then it'll flow somewhere else and it'll flow pretty quickly because as I said, it's easy to move files in one place or another. It's not like um, when we were talking before about the UK and needing more studio space. That's hard to mm-hmm. build overnight. But visual effects, you can move people and people can be trained all over the world. Yeah. And hope, f- hopefully they have a strong internet, unlike ours. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, well, <laughs> share files. It is kind of interesting when the pandemic started because basically uh, everyone, no one could go into their office and all mm. these visual effects, all these movies had all these things. And so they started sending people home with computers. And so it's high security because you can imagine if any of this leaks. And I have some friends that work in visual effects and they were like, it's just changed overnight. In the past, you weren't allowed to do anything outside the office. It's top mm. security. Now people are carting off, you know, whole workstations in their back of their car and we're emailing each other like <laughs> copies of the next, you know, like a clip from what well, I'm not going to name any movies, but from a big movie and whatever and it's so yeah it's kind of even the internet even if you just send it over on a pigeon on a little usb stick the work can still be done yeah it's amazing um now uh our next topic summer tent pole season what the hell is that kicks off about now every year a summer tent pole season is a bit triggering for me that reminds me of a creepy guy at summer camp what what is summer (laughs) tent pole season please you know I, I, I'm not being rude, Jess, but I, I knew you might think of it as something different. <laughs> but I'll be honest, I thought you were going to go down the Bake Off route with the big tent. So no, I was thinking of erection. I was thinking of erections of a tent. Yes, let's yeah. let's go with that. Um, let's go with that definitely. Um, yes, so it, it is tent pole season. So what is a tent pole? I, we'll, we'll, okay, should we move to Blockbuster? Does, is Blockbuster <laughs> less triggering a word for you? You know, you haven't yeah. had it. You didn't have any bad experiences in the eighties with the TV show Blockbusters. Okay, good. Um, yes, so Temples are the, uh, the big releases that studios release every year that kind of bring in uh, m- a lot of their money, the vast majority of their profits, oh. and the rest of their strategy comes below it. Um, and so we used to call them Blockbusters, and yeah. we still kind of do. But Temples is the more sort of um, 
industry term, but uh, it's I mean, very all, silly, actually. It's, I mean, it's all very silly. I think that's one of, that's got to be a theme of this podcast. Is the industry is very silly <laughs> since I'm on it? Yeah. Well, yeah, but also it is unbelievably there silly. Some, the, yeah, yeah, there the really are some mad things. Go on then, tell me all about it. Yeah, so so blockbusters as we know them, I mean, mm. like they the term itself came from the Second World War. I think blockbusters were like big bombs that destroyed whole blocks, and then people started referring to them in like movies, and so like that was the term people used for a big movie. But it was a movie that did very well almost after the fact. Like, oh look at that, that did very well. Whereas what we started to see in the sort of late seventies and eighties was that it became more strategic, and the studios were like, okay, we're going to blitz this particular film. And so Jaws was the first sort of what we often call the first summer blockbuster. Mm-hmm. Um, because previously, films also used to be have platform releases in different cities. So you might open it in L.A. and New York and then a couple of weeks later, take it to another big city. And, and then internationally, as we've talked about before, might be a year or two later. You kind of because they were all physical prints and there wasn't really piracy, you could kind of just, you know, mosey around wherever you wanted to go. And people, local audiences, that was the only experience they had. And so you'd marketed locally. And then as it became a national you know, media and, and then also became global and social media and things like that, it makes sense to open everywhere all at once. Like mm-hmm. just no movie, then suddenly all the movie. And the same with the marketing where you, you in the past, there used to be like teasing trailers and stuff way in advance and spending more money on marketing over a slow burn, like the Godzilla trailer uh, from the late 90s came out, was, was shot and released before they'd shot the film. And so, yeah. And so, but now because of like the short window of of um, news and people's attention span, and also how it is possible to condense all your money into like a couple of weeks and just be everywhere, mm-hmm. the most of this marketing happens in a, a few weeks before the release, and then the film's the number one film for two or three weeks, and then has a bit of a long tail where it's in theaters for a little longer, but ultimately it kind of goes bang and it's there and it grabs its money and then it runs away uh, like a thief in the night. Um, <laughs> And uh, so that's kind of what, so then, yeah, we started with Jaws in the 70s and Star Wars and then Deanne Jones, and then the studios got more into it. And in the 90s with Jurassic Park and Independence Day, Men in Black, all that stuff, they kind of worked out, okay, we'll go big and we'll we'll try and do it as what they call a four-quadrant film, which is they mm-hmm. want men and women and old and young. So they want everyone to go and see it. And we obviously haven't had, to, we haven't had that the last couple of years, the last couple of summers, because the pandemic. And so now we're, everyone's gearing up and it, it sort of comes down to what uh, some of these surveys call people's comfort level. So um, I don't know what you'd rate your comfort level right now as. Oh, um, 10. Out of? Comfort. 10 out of 10 comfort. Okay, I'm good. Very, I'm very snuggly. I'm wearing my pajamas. <laughs> I've got a cup of tea. Yeah, I'd say this. I'm very comfortable. And, and based on what you were saying before, what, what is your comfort level about going to the cinema? How would you how would you rate that? Now? Do I have to go now too? <laughs> you don't have to go right now. But generally, like this is what people are doing surveys about. Like, are people happy oh, to go back to cinemas? Oh, I mean, in terms of uh, am I worried about COVID and mm. all of that sort of stuff? No, I'm an eight. But in terms of do I have to take my pajamas off and put my shoes on, I'm a two. <laughs> you know, fortunately they don't ask surveys like that. Well certainly no they don't publish the results. I'm sure some people are asking. Don't make but... me put my shoes on. <laughs> I don't think you'd be allowed on every man. I think <laughs> you might be more of a view kind of girl. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so they've been doing these surveys constantly since the pandemic started to wane, or at least people's impression of the pandemic, of like how comfortable people are returning to cinemas. And that's obviously a big 
factor because they're, what they're going to have to do is spend a huge amount of money in the weeks leading up to a movie coming out, not quite knowing if people are going to go. And if they get it wrong, they've wasted a lot of money on the movie and also all the marketing. And the marketing can cost twice what the movie cost in some of these big cases. So it's huge. Mm. Um, so they've been measuring people's comfort levels. And so actually that's gone up. So the last survey I read, which was about a week or so ago, 60, sorry, 87% of people were comfortable returning to cinemas, mm. which was up from like 65% in January. So people are getting more comfortable and yeah. also crucially the most reluctant demographic, which is older people, which yeah, yeah. in this particular survey, you're going to like this, was 35 and older. <laughs> yep. What? Uh, yep. You know the old, the old people. Uh, so people who are thirty-five and older. I can say it louder if you need. Um, no, but I'm, I'm very. So <laughs> I know. I'm very much in that demographic too. Don't worry. Um, but um, yeah. So their comfort is up to eighty-three percent, which is quite high. And so that's really important because that's that was a growing audience. That's a big audience, and it's the one that was obviously most negatively affected by the um, pandemic, mm. and also probably the most flexible as in they've got other options they're happy to do other things they will happily sit and read a book um as old people like 36 year olds do um but when it comes to kids and stuff like that you know they're more gung-ho and things like that i remember back then um but yeah so dr strange did very well um which yeah. doesn't make any sense to me i saw it and they must have been seeing a different film from a different <laughs> multiverse i'm excited about dr strange well you can't see it until you've seen sonic 2 um oh. but but it has like it's Grossed over half, a, uh, almost half a billion worldwide, and so biggest one of the biggest openings, and so they're using that as kind of like okay, so we've got these levels of comfort. People seem to be coming back, and then also we've got some really cool films coming out, like Top Gun Maverick, uh, Jurassic World Domination, Lightyear, uh, Thor: A Love and Thunder. Oh, cool. So they're, they're all big tentpoles, mm. but then there are smaller films as well, like Elvis is coming out. Um, yes, Elvis I'm looking forward to that. So that's not strictly a tentpole, but that is a movie they're going to spend a fortune on the marketing of it. So yeah. they'll probably spend $75 million worldwide, including there's a premiere at Cannes as well. So like that will cost a million dollars. So they're really starting to put a lot of money into this and they're really starting to believe that, okay, we're everyone's back, right? So mm. unless there's another strain and, you know, marketing tends to lead to more comfort as well because people will go because they, um, when you're being marketed, the movie. So it... The industry is cautious, but they're kind of excited. And they're also, when they're excited, they put their money where their mouth is. And it seems like the signs are good from Spider-Man last year, Doctor Strange this year. Hopefully we'll have some films that don't aren't from Marvel. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. But it is, it's looking good. Wow. I'm excited. I'm excited to see what happens. And, and also very pleased that um, what we spoke about last week, um, that I won't have to wait too long to just watch it on the telly as well. <laughs> well, I still think <laughs> that's, stream it. I still think that's cheating, but whatever. Mm. Well, maybe we'll do a watch along. Um, yeah. <laughs> can we do a show me the money watch along of Sonic 2 one day? <laughs> you can. You, certainly you can, Jess. You, you should enjoy it. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> Um, so you're off to Cannes this week. This is so exciting. Um, what are you expecting on the money side of things? I mean, personally, I mean, I, and <laughs> I'm expecting your water to cost five euros. I'm expecting <laughs> bad cheese sandwiches to cost twelve. Um, yes, I, I can't believe you've waited this long to bring it up. I am so excited, and I am not going to even pretend I'm hiding it. I, uh, wow! I love Cannes. It's 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 kind of. 
it's it's silly it's got loads of like uh incongruous parts to it but it also embodies the film industry in it and also there's a lot of work done and you get to meet lots of people that you haven't seen for a while or you know you wouldn't see otherwise and mm-hmm. so i kind of i like the sort of perception bubble that sort of disappears and you get this other little world um and so and it because it's also reflective of the pandemic in, in the sense that in 2020 they when the, the the cases were rising, so it happens in May every year. So the, yeah. I should start from the beginning. Cannes Film Festival set up in, just after the Second World War. It's the longest running, or one of the longest running, certainly the biggest film festival, the one that people most um, look to. And it has sort of three parts to it. It has a festival, which is the has an official screening, uh, official selection where. 20 or so films all vie for the Palme d'Or, which is the main award. Yeah. Uh, they have other little sidebars, things out of competition. I might come back to that in a minute. Um, the second part is like a market, where it's called the Marché du Film, which is the behind the scenes um, buying and selling of film rights. Yeah. It's, it's less essential nowadays, but you can imagine pre the ability to email people and also to send screeners of movies over, you know, password protected links. Before all that, people would get together once a year at these markets and see... Uh, films and see new films and say okay I'll buy that for my country and then they'd buy the rights and take it back to their home country and be able to distribute it so it was an important function there and then there's this sort of those two things are run by the same organization uh, but there's this third sort of loose collection of like it's a party scene as well you know there are yachts there are premieres and those things happen all around in this tiny little town Mm -hmm. and so there's sort of art business and sort of party and you kind of each of them happens at a slightly different time the the market side happens it opens at 9 a.m every day and most of the work is done in the first week and and yet the festival the opening party is like three days in uh and goes on for two almost two whole weeks uh and then the party scene again happens a bit sort of lumpier but it happens all over the place in like yachts and it has a lot to do with um in previous years if the monaco grand prix because monaco's around the corner Mm -hmm. happens at the wrong weekend then all the yachts disappear and you wake up and it's all gone um that's not my scene so much. <laughs> I'm much more market and I like the art of it. But but it all happens in this tiny little French town. And during the during the actual festival, there's about, I don't know, half a million. Oh, no, sorry, a quarter of a million people wow. in that town, which is about three times the actual population. So mm-hmm. it's tiny. And, and you know you're being ripped off because all the prices are all written on chalkboards. Because you know that the week before and the week after the festival, they're going to rub it off and take off a zero or something. There's always a sign where you're like, and they, the first few days, they've forgotten what they're going to charge. So you order something and they're like, wait. Um, and they're sort of adding a 10 onto everything. Um, but yeah, so there's there's a, a big strip, a big uh, road right by the beach called the Quasette. And along there, there's loads of hotels. And on the beach side, there's loads of tents that get put up. And then the main building, the one that you see with the red carpet and everything, that's called the Palais. And in when you go up the red carpet, you go yeah. into the main cinema and that's where all the premieres are. And if you go literally round the back and down the stairs, you end up in the bowels of the building where there's the market that looks a lot more like a trade show. And they sort of happen on literally on top of each other at the same time. Wow. Yeah. So it's and it's it's really fun. Like you have to be accredited to go, but it's the bar is quite low. You have to be involved in some way. So you tend to find people. So I could go. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you've got wow. credits and stuff like that. So the the thing is that it is the whole gamut. And so there are like premieres and incredibly famous people and, you know, parties you can't get into. But also then they're at the right other end. There are people that are just starting out. There are sometimes film students. There are people who are trying to make their first project and will end up at, you know, there's a there's a crappy little bar called the Petit Majestic that has lawn furniture out front on the street. 
and it becomes this sort of wayfair stop where everyone on the way to somewhere comes and has a quick drink in this crappy little place but because of the nature of it you get to bump into really interesting people and you know you have like a five minute conversation with someone from the other part of the world and you know that's then a connection you might use in the future so it has this social you know process to it I guess this function within the industry wow is there an official can podcast that's what I'd like to know I'm sure there is. And I'm sure there's, the thing is about the, the press regulation at Cannes is really tight. So if you can't just go there and say, hey, I'm a journalist, they want to see what you've written about Cannes in the past and if it's positive. And there's so many different tiers of access. And they won't necessarily tell you whether you've got the good one or the bad one. You might have the blue one or whatever they call it this year. And you have to get, and so the first few days is everyone looking at everyone else's past going, am I, am I, am I going the good ones? Am I going the bad ones? Um, but they're, they're quite strict about stuff. So, they actually have banned uh, any Russian media or journalists who do not oppose the war. Right, good. So, I mean, they've, they've, they've refused them to have a media accreditation, which, if you're a professional, is the same thing because the, uh-huh. they get to see certain kind of screenings and stuff. Uh-huh. Um, so they're being they're quite political, but they also they're quite um, they've been able to be in their own world for a long time. So when the pandemic started in uh, 2020. So this happens in May and the pandemic was kicking off in February, March was really kicking off here. And they said, we're not going to delay it. And and as the time went on, this became increasingly silly. They were like, we were, we were in April and people were in lockdown. They were like, nope, it's happening. It's happening. And eventually they did. They they The market went online a few months later and they, there wasn't a festival. Mm-hmm. And then last year they held one late. I think again, I think it was July, but they also, they did... Um, all sorts of testing when the, the form of testing they did was they people had to spit into tubes constantly and they were constantly checking and it was half the people were online and half the people went physically and it was this weird hybrid thing and mm-hmm. you can remember this time last year was still well summer last year was still kind of very covidy yeah very yeah, scary. yeah definitely so this year everyone's kind of hoping that about 90 percent of the people who are going quote unquote are going to go physically and only 10 percent are online so this is another sign that these things are kind of coming back to life um but it also reminds you of the the situations that were we had before so before the pandemic was our major concern so this year has a record number i checked this out a record number of direct of films in the competition directed by women Ooh. what percent yeah what percentage do you think they've hit <laughs> probably like it's probably going to be something really sad like 15 percent. it's not quite it's it's 24%, not even, under 24%, but it's still wow. terrible. It's still and awful. This, not only is it pretty low, one in four directors, one in four films having a, uh, led by a woman, but uh, also this is like the fact that it's the record is a problem. Like this is the best. Yeah. So uh, that's, I mean, they also have a bad reputation with other things. Like they have a very strict um, dress code policy. So if you're not for all the screenings, many, many of all the meetings, people are wearing scruffy, you know, comfortable shoes because they're walking everywhere and just shorts and T-shirts and whatever. Like it's quite scruffy when it comes to the day to day because it's hot and people are running around to meetings. Mm. But for the evening screenings, the gala screenings that happen on the red carpet, yeah, super strict dress code. And women up until recently had to wear high heels. That's and, really, really pathetic. Yeah, isn't it really pathetic? And so they, and this came out a couple of years before the pandemic. People were like, "Well, no, I, I'm obviously I don't mind being smart and respectful, but I don't, I'm not going to have to wear high heels." And they were That's literally ridiculous. sort of policing. That's so it. prehistoric. I know. And so they've 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 relaxed that, and you know, men still have to look vaguely like penguins. And what women, shoes have you um, got? 
I see. I've got the comfortable shoes, and then I've got the uncomfortable ones for the evening. What what but, what are your uncomfortable ones? Well, they're smart. I don't like big smart. Black, smile. brown. Black or oh, brown is not smart. No, you're Come right. On. You're right. Are but they patent? <laughs> I don't know what that means, which means that I'm not like posh super enough to shiny. Know. Oh yeah. Oh, not like a not are they cra- nice. Cu- are they a leather? Are they a brogue? Are they whatever? What have we got? Have they got a Have they got a Cuban heel? Okay. If the readers, <laughs> if the readers could write in and tell me what these words mean, I'd really appreciate it. <laughs> I have black shoes. I've I've cleaned them, and I'm going to bring them. Where are they from? Not Shoe Express. <laughs> I can't remember. They might be from Clark's when I was a kid. I can't remember. Um, <laughs> they got but, Velcro. <laughs> but, but I am going to one gala dinner where they keep emailing me, telling me I have to wear a tux. And I don't think it's personally aimed at me, but it must be that they, they kept emailing me saying business suits are not acceptable. And at some point I had to go, look, I get it. All right. I know that you need to keep reminding me. But, but there's a lot of that. So. Wow. With the with the actual meetings, people are really informal. You might meet people for eight minutes. You might say, "I'll just meet you outside here," and you just stand and have a croissant. Well, like it can be really informal. But for the party and the gala stuff, it's all status, wow. and so people get very snooty about things. People are turned away, and it's I don't know. It's it's a status thing, and there's a lot of that going on, and a lot of posturing, and yeah. But it's, it's the whole thing is very political. A lot How of how humiliating are if you're turned away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing about Cannes, I, I think it's a bit different now in the age of QR codes and with extra security and COVID. But the whole art of going to Cannes, especially when you were starting out in your career, was the art of the blag of like how you'd convinced like people you should be in because they don't quite know. And the, and the bouncers don't want to turn away someone who's famous. So one year when I, I was there with some friends, who one of them was an actor, not a famous actor, but he, he looks like a star, carries himself. Great. So mm. we were all wearing tuxes and we just thought, let's see what we can get into. So we just walked really confidently past all the lines into a load of parties and it just worked every time wow. and the one time the bouncer looked like they were going to stop us he just gave him this look like don't you know who i am and we got in wow and so yeah and the, the other ones are things like um you stand i don't it won't work so much now anyway but it used to work that you'd stand outside smoking for a while and then just walk backwards in, you know walk back in as if you'd just come out <laughs> and then Brilliant. my favorite one was a friend of mine who was doing some reporting uh for just a a, a web tv show this was like 10 years ago and he had a a microphone with a little box on it and he the box itself was a bbc one that he'd stuck other stuff on and he took the stickers off for his his web show so it had bbc logo on it and he would it wasn't wasn't plugged in but he talked into it looked off into the far distance and walked backwards in as if he was live absolutely amazing <laughs> yeah he said it kept working because then if anyone stops him he's like oh i'm oh, terribly sorry has something funny anyway as i was saying and then they just he just walked into the parties. Oh, so, so good. Oh, just to brazen it out like that as well. I would love to be there with Show Me The Money this time next year in an official capacity and a very lovely dress. Well, I, I, I'm happy to support you going so long as you don't wear high heels and we try and get you kicked out of places. <laughs> it would be my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a listener question, um, which I love. Uh, this is from Ruben in Sydney. Yeah, we've got them all over the world. Um <laughs> He says, I'm curious as to whether many movies have different versions containing localised content depending on the country of release. The same way a travelling stand-up might learn a few local references to tailor their opening jokes in a new location. This is such a brilliant question. Yeah, no, I love this. And so you, you as a, as a travelling jobbing comedian, yeah. do you, how much do you localise your content when you go on stage? 
I will probably talk about the local bar that I passed and I'll <laughs> say to the audience, I'll see you in there afterwards. I'll have a white wine with a straw. And um, yeah, I'll probably talk about the local services, give them a mark out of 10, you know. This is gold. It is a fun thing to do. It's really funny to, to explore the town and... Um, uh, talk about you know what what you think of it and get the in, inside gossip. People really like that because you they made do. an effort. Yeah, exactly. You and and it feels like it's funny because it shouldn't make much difference, but it kind of does. And also, it feels nice to to know that they're they're aware of where you are and they're thinking about you. And it's the same with movies where really yeah, there's there's stuff that and um, we don't realize it as much because obviously a comedian coming into a, a town that that the person doesn't live in, we know that they've traveled there, but movies even though we know like logically that they're like foreign productions, we still only see the version we see. And so we assume that version is the same everywhere, mm. but actually studios spend a lot of time and money actually changing movies. Um, so they do the obvious thing that people might assume that they do, which they do is, is to, because of cultural or political sensitivities. So, I think um, Doctor Strange was not shown in Saudi Arabia because there's one scene where someone is shown to have two mothers, even though they don't reference it. Yes. And so they were like, cut that out. And Disney were like, no. And so the movie wasn't shown. So there's that, which is censorship, which we yeah, yeah. understand. And mm-hmm. with that's, but this question specifically is about localization, which is the, I think, the more fun of the two, because it's about how you tweak the movie and sh- to make it relevant to the local audience. Yeah. And so, um, so I'll give you an example. So, uh, actually, what, I'm going to ask you why you think this is. So, have you seen Inside Out, the Pixar? Yes. One? Great. So, in the movie that you saw, probably Riley, the main girl, mm-hmm. she her dad's trying to give her pizza with broccoli on. But in Japan, they mm-hmm. didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what What did they change and why? Oh, so they must have changed. Maybe what was on either what was on the pizza or the pizza altogether, trying to give her something else, something. Yeah. Oh, what were they going? What were they doing then? So the, the it's actually quite important within the story because it's where we're introducing the character of disgust, uh, and, yeah. and disgust is there to protect her. And he's like, "Oh no, broccoli's terrible." We're in Japan, uh, apparently everyone loves broccoli, so it just wouldn't work. It would right. be a cultural reference they wouldn't get because they'd be like, "Well, that's lovely." So why would you not like if dogs were making movies and they're like, "Look at this poisonous chocolate," and you're like, <laughs> "What?" Um, so, so that was changed to green peppers, uh, oh. and then yeah, and then um, uh, in. Iron Man 3, they did something different, which is kind of interesting, where they had more exposure for the Chinese characters. Mm-hmm. So the version we saw, there was a uh, Dr. Wu was one of Tony Stark's friends and yeah. he was in it briefly. But then in the Chinese version, there's more material and also more, there's a few more scenes. And then also there was a cameo by Fan Bingbing, which is, she's a famous Chinese actress. Um, and they also had some product placements for Chinese milk. And it's wow. about f- four minutes more. Wow. Uh, so it's not just shorter because they've cut stuff out. Sometimes it's more things. Um, although when I was looking at things cut out, uh, apparently the Wolf of Wall Street was shown in the United Arab Emirates, the yeah. UAE. Um, but they cut out some of the worst content and they cut out about 45 minutes. Um, wow. And so audiences said it made no sense, um, which is fair. But uh, but actually it's it's all sorts of things they change. So 
uh, Die Hard, the mm-hmm. terrorists who are not terrorists, but let's use the word terrorist, um, were German for most of the world, but they yeah. were actually English or IRA. They had English names and they were sort of thought to be from the IRA in, in Germany. So um, they would have redubbed them, would they? Yeah, well, they would have re- redubbed the whole film anyway because it would have been redubbed into German of to course, be released in Germany. Course. But then they're changing the references as well. So that's a situation where the audio is changing, but the actual movie isn't. But they can change quite a bit. So when um, this one, is, I like this one. This is Pride and Prejudice, the one that came out in 2005 by Joe Wright, yeah. starring yeah. Kira Knightley. So there's a scene towards the end where uh, Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden are kissing. Uh, they're having a post-coital kind of canoodle in the in mm-hmm. the moonlight, and it is absolutely not in the book. And it is absolutely kind of non-canon. And any sort of Austin fans are like, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> so they they cut it out of the British version because they were like, "We just we can't cope with this." But because because it's just wrong. But Americans need happier endings. And uh, the director himself said. I guess in America, you just need a little more sugar in your champagne. Oh. Which I think that's a... I don't, I, you can't get the tone because I read that. But to me, that sounds a bit like, you know, someone who sort of stirs in sugar into champagne isn't isn't the classiest, right? No. But, um, no. but yeah, so... And, not. But so, and the, so sometimes it's the movie and, and things like that. But the, the, the last one, which I thought was pretty cool, was that Lincoln... Uh, so in America, it just begins with the Gettysburg Address. But in the Japanese version, there is a minute-long... Uh, piece to camera by Steven Spielberg, who directed it. He's just giving a lecture about it. <laughs> so like, what, it's so not... they've got some context. Yeah, it's just oh, like wow. so. He sits down for a minute or two and says, "Let me tell you about the American Civil War." And so it makes sense. But it's like I I thought this was going to be mostly about animations because it happens a lot in animation because it's easier to replace characters and yeah. things. But actually, no. It's it's like I said. It's the cutting out whole scenes sometimes, and also in this case, starting with like a mini documentary. Amazing. So yeah, localization a happens a huge amount. Brilliant question, Ruben. I love you, whoever you are. <laughs> that's the highest. That's the highest praise you can get for a reader question in a podcast. Yeah, man, that was really, really interesting. I loved that. And so um, next time we are doing our a little podcast recording, will you be actually in Cannes? No, I'll be back. I'll be sunburnt uh, and full of ice cream <laughs> and croissants and exhausted. But um, no, I'm going there for just under a week. And the, the whole thing lasts for like uh, almost two weeks, but almost everyone goes to the opening weekend. So uh, the second weekend that's technically there is kind of a, em- empty. So all of this madness is going to happen between now and the next pod. Oh, and my God. I will come back with stories. I will come back with, with the label from my shoes and I'll tell you everything you need to know about <laughs> Can them. Can you do for some reason, it's important, <laughs> which I don't understand, but fine, let's go with that. Can you do a video diary? Absolutely not. <laughs> no can way do, on earth. Okay, well, can you do a little a little audio diary, voice clips, and then we'll play them in? All right, I'll find some audio clips, and I will also I will take a photo of me in a tux, because I have to do that anyway for my mum, who doesn't believe I own a tux. And so I will, <laughs> I will give you the most reluctant uh, can experience from someone who doesn't do the party scene. But I will, yeah, I will do some audio clips, and maybe it's the beach, maybe it's the hubbub, um, and maybe I'll illegally record some movies and get thrown yeah. here just for you, Jess, because just so you're there in spirit. Wait, I can't <laughs> wait. 
Oh, thank you all for listening and thank you for sending your brilliant questions in. If you like Show Me The Money, uh, please give it a follow on your podcast app and leave us a lovely five-star review, please. Um, If you have a question that you would like answered on the show, like the wonderful Ruben in Sydney, then just email us at showmethemoneypod at gmail.com. That's showmethemoneypod at gmail.com. Thank you. And goodbye. Bye.